Thanks for listening to this episode of Chewing the Fat with CB and JY. In this episode, we chew the fat with Molly Ryan, who was kind enough to share her mental health journey. We discuss sensitive topics and themes such as depression, anxiety, borderline personality disorder, and suicide. If these topics or anything you hear triggers you, please reach out to someone or contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. There is also a comprehensive list of resources in the show notes if you or anyone you know needs help. Let's go. Welcome to Chewing the Fat. Today we are chewing the fat with Molly Ryan. Molly, thank you so much for coming on. How are you going today? Good. How are you? Very well. How are you both? We're well, Molly. Pleasure to be, pardon? We're well. Good. Pleasure to be on. Thank you for having me on. Now, for listeners of our, of our first season of Chewing the Fat, um, you know, would know that JY and myself are both pretty passionate about the field of mental health. We're by no means experts in the field. Um, we have done an episode on this. It's something that we're both pretty passionate about, both in our own lives and with our clients, being proactive, hearing people's stories. And um, Molly, you've obviously been, you know, brave, courageous and generous enough to come on the show and tell us your story when it comes to mental health, because you have had quite a, a journey um, over the years. So first of all, can you just tell us a little bit about who you are, about yourself and um, yeah, about, about what brings you here, I suppose. Mm, um, so I'm 29, born and raised Melbourne girl, um, work in sort of like the medical health profession, more in the realm of, um, dermatology. So sort of attuned to that whole kind of like health aspect of things and, you know, well-being f- across sort of all facets really. Um, and yeah, I suppose that's me in a nutshell, pretty boring. <laughs> Yep. So Molly works at a fantastic dermatologist. Dermatology practice. If I can spit that out in, uh, in summary. Yes. Say, that's what they do out there. Shout out. Yeah, we'll give them a shout, yes. shout out. Yes. In the, uh, in the yeah. um, But you have, as I said, you know, been really open about your, your journey with, with your mental health and, and how you sort of suffered with that and, and struggled with that at times over the years. Um, can you tell us, take us back to the start, when did you first start to sort of deal with the negative implications of, of mental health and how did that sort of come about for you? Yeah, so I suppose I think when I first sort of maybe started experiencing sort of just like issues or feelings of being down was maybe probably like 2008. Um, and then I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety in I think 2009 or 2010 and then I've been medicated since about August 2010 so I've been medicated from 2010 basically all the way up until now so coming on like 11 years on medication now so it's been a fair while and a lot of sort of um psychiatrists psychologists and you know all that kind of different therapies and everything as well yeah how did you go from i suppose that first time when you recognize those those sort of feelings to actually come mm. and getting a diagnosis what was that process like for you um well i suppose for me um there was uh, i suppose like incidences and things where 
I would have like a major sort of like emotional reaction and like my parents, like, you know, things would happen. And then that like, there was no hiding it type thing. Like it wasn't kind of like a slow bring on where it was just like, oh yeah, I've been feeling down for a few days or now I've been feeling down for a few weeks. It was like things would happen. And then I would almost go into almost like catastrophe. And then my parents kind of like, yeah, like something's up she needs to go and see someone. So then they referred me on to a psychologist, but I suppose to see a psychologist in term, well, in Australia to get like a Medicare rebate, you need what's called like a K10 test. Um, Have you guys heard of that before? think so yes yeah yeah so a few people like some people are quite well versed in like what a k10 test is other people aren't so it's basically you go to your gp there's a list of i think 10 questions it would make sense if it's called k10 um yeah and it kind of says um you know or asks all these questions like um how often do you feel you know like sad that you can't like cheer yourself up and then you know it'll be like some of the time you know most of the time or neutral and yet like all the time and so you answer all these questions and then you basically get um, a grade sort of at the end and then that determines sort of like where you're sitting at the moment like mentally and once you submit that K10 test and your GP submits it on your behalf you get um used to be able to get six sessions um it like that were rebated by medicare and you could actually get 12 sessions all up within the year so you access six and then if you need another six sort of like within that year, you access that additional six and then that enables you to get a medicare rebate um but then they reduced it to 10 so it used to be 12 sessions in a year and then they brought it back to 10. So um, it's still 10 at the moment. I, th- it, I might be wrong, but I think they were looking at increasing that again after, after COVID. Um, so now you can access six and then if you need an additional four, you access that additional four. So I would pay probably say anywhere between like oh, 140 to like $180 to see a psychologist. When I started seeing a psychologist in 2010, it was probably about $140. Now to see my psychologist, I pay um, $180 and I get $86 back from Medicare. So if I go above, you know, however many sessions within that um, annual year, you have to just pay it all on your own. So it can be, it can sort of end up being quite expensive and which is where I suppose there's almost sometimes like a, that's where a lot of people sort of like fall, you know, fall through the cracks and stuff like that. You know, not a lot of people can afford it all the time or they might think, oh, well, I really need to see my psychologist like fortnightly, but oh, I can only afford to see them like monthly. And then that's why sometimes people's health can deteriorate and everything as well. So that's kind of a little bit of the, how the system works and how people can kind of fall through the cracks and stuff like that as well. Yeah. I think we're super lucky to obviously have a system like that where we are. You know, mm. the sessions and the government fully supports that, you know, people taking care of their mental health. But yep. like you said, you know, that doesn't, you know, cover every single dollar. And mm. if, yeah, like, exactly. Barrier for people getting their mental health, well, that's yeah, exactly yeah. scary. And, I mean, there's systems like Headspace and stuff as well, but um, you actually have to be um, 25 and younger to be able to access Headspace services. Um, I think I went there once when I was like 26 or 27 and they were like, no, you're too old. 
<laughs> I was like, oh, really? But yeah, like, you know, Headspace gets um, like, you know, an absolute flogging in terms of like its promotion and stuff. And like, it's great. It's a great sort of like free service for people. But yeah, if you're over the age of 25, those services aren't available to you. And I suppose if people, you know, work in certain workplaces where they can have access to like counsellors and stuff like that as well, that's a huge help for them also. But then I suppose there's an issue, you know, if you ever move workplaces, you don't have access to those services and stuff anymore. Um, But yeah, I actually see a psychologist and a psychiatrist. So um, the psychologist is more of a, um, like the therapeutic, the talking kind of side of things. And the psychiatrist is more of like the medical side of things. So psychiatrist is a doctor who can prescribe medications and sort of knows all that background, how those medications interact with your body and stuff like that as well. So I kind of have both so that I, you know, I see, was seeing my psychologist fortnightly and my psychiatrist monthly, but now I see my psychiatrist probably three monthly and my psychologist probably like monthly. So, because I'm pretty stable at the moment, but when I'm sort of, you know, in that peak of like things aren't going well, I'll be seeing them like that frequently. And then, yeah, it costs about, for, to see my psychiatrist is probably like, 245 to $250 a session. And that might be half an hour, not even. And then you get like a hundred dollars back. And I mean, if you work that out, you know, you're seeing a a psychologist fortnightly and you're seeing a psychiatrist like monthly, it can end up being like quite expensive. Definitely not cheap. And and do your psychologists and psychiatrists have a relationship themselves? Is it sort of a multidisciplinary team approach or are you sort of seeing them, I suppose, in separate realms? Um, so they kind of have to have communication. So I see that, you know, they're not sort of affiliated, I suppose, in terms of they don't fall under like the same health sort of, um, you know, they don't work at the say like the same hospital or anything like that. So they're separate in terms of that, but they have to keep up communication with each other, sort of like to discuss my progress, what things they're doing and then, um, what, um, medications I'm on, where we're currently at. And I suppose, in, so when your psychiatrist um, is going to prescribe medication as well, she'll do like a, well, he or she will do a full screening of bloods to determine, you know, where all your levels are at, what's here, what's there and stuff like that as well. Um, but I know some people can have a tough time with medications having to like constantly change, you know, they might try one thing and then it doesn't work. And then, so then they have to try something else and then that might work or then they might use something for three years, then it becomes ineffective. Um, But I suppose I've been pretty lucky. Like the first medication that we got me on, I've been able to maintain staying on that this entire time. My dosages have changed going up and down throughout sort of the 11 years, but I've been able to maintain staying on the same one as I know other people who can, you know, just have a tough time, you know, trying all these different medications and it takes about like three weeks to kick in before you know if it's going to work. So you know, those are significant periods of time where you're like up and down and up and down and up and down trying to sort of find the right thing to suit you. So I suppose I've been pretty lucky, you know, finding but the first one I tried worked and I've been able to stay on that. Yeah, well, so we're talking about antidepressants, Molly, just to be clear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So you find, so the, you know, the best part of a decade, this has still been an approach that's been, uh, I suppose, a staple in, in the managing your mental health over this time and has still remained effective. 
um, in the long term for you. Sorry, what was that question? So, so being medicated, so the answer to the question mm -hmm. is fine. As you said, a lot of people might find they have adverse reactions or they have to bounce between mm -hmm. medications and see what, what works well for them and what they respond mm -hmm. to. You said that you were lucky enough, obviously, to find something that was, you know, really useful and effective and, you know, that you were okay on very, very early. And obviously, for the mm. part of a decade or even more, you've still been on the same medication, you said. I mean, one, I suppose, it's great if that has been able to help you for this whole time. But, I mean, you obviously found that this is something that's still been, a key and still been effective for you all these years later. Um, mm. You know, I suppose, is that, do you think that's typical for most people who go on antidepressants? Do you think you're, I suppose, unique? in that setting that it has been yeah. such a long period of time and i mean do you also just to extend on that question as well do you think this is something that's going to be an ongoing thing for you and Zeppelin, mm. or is this something you're going to try to wean away from mm. um in an ideal world i'd love to get off it would love to not you know have to be on medication and not have to rely on it but i'm i'm not at that point so the dose that i'm on at the moment is actually like pretty high um so the starting sort of so different medications have different dosages and everything so you know my medication my medication and the dosage that I'm on will be different to a different medication that somebody else is on so the starting dose of the medication that I'm on is probably about like 30 to 75 milligram I'm on 300 milligrams every day yeah. so it's pretty, it's a pretty hefty dose. Um, and the medication's actually um, addictive, not addictive in the, um, in the terms of that, you know, how people might have like a smoking addiction or an alcohol addiction, not like that. Like I don't sort of like crave it, but if I get to, um, if I forget my medication in the morning, I'll hit probably about 1 PM the next, you know, that day and I start to feel really, really physically ill. Like I get really quite unwell and nothing can make me feel better. Um, and because you've forgotten to take the medication, well, you haven't remembered that you haven't taken it. So you're like, oh God, why do I feel so sick today? Like what's going on? Am I hungry? And then you eat something and you're like, oh, that doesn't make me feel better. Am I thirsty? You drink something that doesn't make you feel better. And so you just, and then, you know, the penny will finally drop and I'm like, oh, like I forgot my medication today and I've gone into withdrawals. So by, you know, halfway through the day, the next day, I'm going into withdrawals. So I don't like that, but in terms of also um, initially when I got medicated, my parents were really anti me going on medication. They were like, no, we, you know, we don't want you on medication. Like that's so bad. And then when I finally did get on it, my mum was like, wow, I can't believe that we, you know, were opposed to you going off, like not going on this. Like it's just improved your quality of life like massively and you're much more better and more calm and stable when you're on it. So my parents have been sort of like, you know, huge advocates for it now. So yeah, I ideally like to get off the medication, but if I have to be on it for the rest of my life, well, then I have to. Um, basically the whole turning point for me sort of having to go on medication was, you know, they discussed it, gave me the option. Myself and my parents were like, no, I don't really want to go on it. Then I got to the point where I was like suicidal and then they were like, okay, well, you don't have a choice anymore. Like the risk of you sort of doing something like that versus, you know, the risks of being on medication, like, you know, 
it, they outweigh each, each other type thing. So that's what I think. Like, ideally, I'd like to get off it. But I mean, if my mental health would deteriorate massively, then I, and I have to be on it for the rest of my life, then so be it. Um, I discussed just before Christmas last year with my psychiatrist, actually, I said, oh, you know, because things are pretty good, I'm thinking maybe we can start like, look at weaning my dose a little bit. And she was like, well, you know, you're going into Christmas and New Year's. It's a really busy time of the year. And she's like, I'm away. Like, she's like, I'm having time off if anything happens and you need like a script or you need to contact me immediately. She's like, I'm not going to be here. So she's like, we'll look to do that in the new year. And I was like, oh yeah, no, good point. Like, you know, you're going to be in sort of like a different headspace and everything as well. So I was like, yeah, that that's fine. But also um, I know, for example, if I were to fall pregnant and have a baby, um, my baby will somewhat be born addicted to my medication as well. So the idea of that kind of really scares me in terms of the real technical ins and outs of that. I, you know, I don't fully know, but um, yeah, I know that babies and stuff can be born with addictions to like certain medications that you're on and everything as well. So like, I don't like the idea of that. That's not really great, but, and I think I've just um, basically everybody else that I know that's been medicated has had to try different medications. So I think I've just been, like uniquely really lucky to find something that's just worked all the way through. But in saying that some people do all of a sudden, they'll just, just one day will stop working like for, for no reason. I think it was, um, I'm don't quote me, but I think it might've been Danny Frawley. Um, he, his medication did, uh, I know that they're saying now it's the whole, it might've been, the head injury type of stuff as well. But I think he was um, throughout his depression and stuff, he was on a medication and then one day he's just like stopped working and then he had to change as well. So there's also the risk of that I could just wake up one day and then my medication might be ineffective and that's just what will happen. And that's the way that it is. Yeah. Right. Mm. Um, really cool to get that clarification on, I suppose, yeah, the different roles of psychologists and psychiatrists as well as just the role of the medication mm. for the pain and mental health is I think that's, I mean, like a lot of these things, there's probably quite a stigma and there's plenty of people who are like, you know, mental health is purely a chemical imbalance and you just need to take a pill and make it even better. And there's plenty of people who are the complete opposite camp to that and saying, well, this is not a medical issue, this is a social, environmental, psychological issue. Mm-hmm. It, it should be yeah. my medication, whereas, um, and as I said, by no means are we mental health professionals or experts, but I think the reality is the answer's going to lie somewhere in the middle. You know, for a lot of people, such as yourself, it is going to have mm-hmm. an important role to play and it's going to be super beneficial as part of a broader management plan, um, you know, rather than seeing these things really black and white. Yeah. And I like I think the way that we've built upon um mental health strategies and things, I think I look, I remember 10 years ago, a lot of the time it was straight to medication. I remember mm. the, the first the first thing that would, you know, be suggested was medication, rather than a lot of the mm. strategies that um we've you know built through society um coming into you know, the current age. Um, and I think, like, as you said before, if, if it is something that you need to be on and it does help, that's, you know, then that, that's so be it. I think that's, um, that's important. But it's, it must be quite, um, it must feel good to know that there, there are other strategies as well to go hand in hand with it and that we're constantly evolving in that um, sort of aspect. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, like I've heard so many um, people and like friends come to me and, you know, they might have had sort of struggling with their mental health a bit, feeling 
you know, feelings of, dep- you know, depressive moods and everything. And they'll say, oh yeah, I went to the GP and they just um, prescribed me antidepressants mm-hmm. like straight off the bat. And I mean, I think the, you know, the best idea would be to, or like, I, I never think that that's a good idea. I mean, I'm sure that doctors have a way, you know, a reason as to why they do things like that. But I mean, I always think you should sort of try the therapies first, try seeing a counsellor, try seeing a psychologist, you know, so that you can learn the strategies how to cope rather than just like a Band-Aid approach because then how are you going to know how to cope to ever eventually get off those medications and things like that? So you're not really learning how to fix the problem. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, it's like if somebody was overweight, overweight and they go to their doctor and the doctor's like, oh, yeah, I'll just prescribe you diet pills well then that person never knows how to exercise they never know how to eat healthy like how are they ever going to learn like yeah, yeah you need to sort of like learn how to do those things first yeah. so that you know you can go on and it's more like the longevity and everything well, as well the other, yeah exactly the other side of it is it's not so black and white it's not like mm. something fixed there's you know mm-hmm. there is no you know it, it's almost something that will be we all have this going on forever. We all deal with yep. bits and pieces and, you know, there's obviously different extents and it all lies on a spectrum, but it's not like you can reach a point where suddenly, yeah, cool. Awesome. You're, you're yep. fine now. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think I learned, I learned that too, like for so long, um, I almost like, it sounds so ridiculous, but I almost like felt like, um, oh, well, I've been down for so long, um, you know, like karma will come around and good will come to me eventually. So I, it's not as if I ever went away from sort of like seeing a psychologist and doing those therapies and everything, but I suppose I wouldn't actively engage in things that they were sort of strategies that they were trying to teach me and everything. So I don't want to say I didn't really try, but I wasn't really active in sort of doing that. And, you know, you might even have bouts of where you go, oh, yeah, I'm really good now. I don't, you know, I don't need to see my psychologist for a while. And then soon it might be four, four months before I go back and see them. And then something happens and then things come crashing down and you book in a session and then you just play and catch up for that you know, that first session, cause you're like, oh yeah, well, you know, like this has changed. My sister's moved out. So little things that you don't think are, you know, conducive to what's going on in your life. But then, you know, they're all little factors that influence some way. And then you, you almost that first session back with your psychologist, almost pe- playing catch up, trying to tell them this and that. So, and I suppose, yeah, as well, like going to the gym, you're not going to go like once a month and expect, you know, like really good results or go, oh yeah, I've put on weight, you know, over the past month. So I'll just like smash it for a week and then I'll be sweet and then I won't go. Like you've got to, I've sort of learned that I had to routinely go keep up that. Even if I feel like I don't have much to talk about, go anyway, reiterate and solidify all those strategies that they're teaching me. And then I I kind of realized that I'm like, well, you actually have to try. I was like, you have to put in the effort. You have to actively try to do the things that they're telling me, you know, keep um, practice those strategies, um, exercise those things and everything. And yeah, I suppose it's the same as like going to the gym. You need to work those muscles all the time in order to maintain it and to get where you want to go. So yeah, for a long time, I think, yeah, I was just like, oh yeah, I'll go to my psychologist and I'll just take medication and I'll be right. But yeah, actually having to put the work in and the effort in to sort of get there was a really hard part as well. Such a good analogy comparing it to the world of 
dieting mm. something that, you know, I suppose as a whole in society, we, we get that a bit more. You know, we get we need to eat healthy and exercise and move on a consistent basis to maintain our physical health, but we probably don't get yeah. that proactive approach to mental health, whereas it's, I mm. think, it's been more of a reactive thing, like, oh, I'll do that. All those things are there if I need them, but, you know, yeah. I don't necessarily need them, but being proactive is obviously so important, especially when you've got issues. Um, yeah, touched on exactly. earlier, you know, that once you're in the system, once you're dealing with psychologists and psychiatrists, the finances unfortunately can be a barrier to getting ongoing care and probably even to that proactive approach and that maintenance approach once you are mm. Mm. on top of things. But um, I think still a massive barrier is people going and taking that first step to actually accessing care. And probably, you know, males more than females, we struggle to talk about our feelings and our emotions and mm. take that first step to say, okay, geez, I actually do need to see a psychologist choosing someone, having that conversation, knowing where to start. I think, um, you know, that is a massive barrier to people getting on top of their mental health. How is that process mm. for you? I know it was a very long time ago. It's probably mm. normal for you now, but going and seeing a psychologist for the first time, mm. what was that like? And oh, I suppose a lot of people also will bounce between different people because it's really important. They form trust in a relationship with someone. Yeah, yeah. Health. Did you find mm. that was difficult for yourself? And to elaborate on that as well, I know I'm asking quite a quick question, but no. um, for, for someone who is struggling and, and who does need to take that first step, what would your advice be having done that? Mm. Mm. Um, definitely like persevere. Um, I have had so many friends that have said, oh yeah, I went and saw someone like once or twice and then they were, oh, they didn't really help. They weren't, they weren't really good for me and stuff like that. And it, and it is, and it's so hard. Like, I think the first couple of times I went, I was like, is this even going to help? Like, I don't understand, but I suppose going back to the gym analogy again, you know, it's like, you know, you go, go to do a session for like, you know, what every day, once a week. And then you're like, well, why don't I have abs? <laughs> you know, you're just like, well, why isn't that happening? Like it does take time. Yeah. And it does take effort and you sort of, but I do think like persevere, but at the same time, be attuned to if that person is the right person for you, because as you said before, like you do need to really like gain trust with that person. And sometimes you just don't gel with those people. I'm probably on to my third psychologist now. So over an 11 year period, um, I had a female psychologist, then another female, and now I have a male. So what the reason for the change, I think for me was, I think I almost got like really comfortable with my psychologist and that I almost just like stopped listening to them. And that's like no discredit to them like whatsoever I think you know I was like oh yeah she says whatever and then I I think just after time I would you know didn't listen to them and just stopped doing that but it's actually I find the dynamic really interesting now with my psychologist um I don't know whether and not a thing of being sexist at all but I don't know whether it's because he's a male I feel almost like I suppose he's probably a little bit more rigid and he um, doesn't like he sees through my bullshit and he calls me out on it. And then I'm like, Oh, oh," like he knows, like he won't, he doesn't like enable me to make excuses. Um, He really like keeps me accountable and stuff like that. So I suppose it's sometimes like, almost like a teacher, not really, but you know, where you, you're like, Oh, I have to do what they say because you know, they know when I'm like lying or they know that. So I think that's what's enabled me to go on with him very well. But um, 
this psychologist that I see now, he's also um, a doctor and he teaches at Melbourne Uni as well. So he's quite sort of like high up in that field also. Um, but when I saw him, um, my basically he was sort of at capacity. He wasn't taking on new patients. I'd hit a really bad point. I was like at rock bottom. Um, my mum basically like rang around so many places to try to find a particular therapy that was recommended to me and somebody that did it, got in contact with him and his people. They were like, no, we're not taking on anybody else. Um, my mum basically just like begged him to take me on. And then he ended up taking me on after that. But I suppose I was in a really bad place to sort of like eventually get there. But yeah. Can you tell us, Molly, um, if you don't mind, what was mm -hmm. your rock bottom? Um, what led you? Mm. And, and then how did you actually find the way from off that rock bottom to, to where you mm. are? Yeah. So um, I suppose um, I've, had uh, uh, I've had three or four hospital admissions from um, self-harm. So the first one... The first one, when I kind of, I was admitted to emergency and then the, they were kind of like, we want to um, admit you to the psychiatric ward. Like, we, you know, we want to admit you as a patient there. We think you need to go there. And um, my parents kind of said to the doctors and stuff at the hospital, they were like, well, we will take time off of work and we will care for her at home so that she doesn't have to be um, admitted to the psychiatric ward. So they initially did that. So they, my parents took time off work. They were there with me every day. And then um, psychiatrists and nurses were sent from the hospital every day to my house. So they'd come and they'd sit down with me on the couch and we'd go through things. And then I suppose it was a little bit of recovery back from that. Um, the second time, I think I was just on a hold in emergency for a little bit. Then I got discharged and went home. Um, and then the third time, I suppose it was just kind of like, okay, it's getting a bit sort of, you know, this like keeps happening. Something's got to give type thing. So then that's when I actually was admitted as an inpatient to the psych ward. So I was in the psych ward for about five days. Some people are in there for like six weeks. So when I look back on it, like I was really lucky, I suppose, to be in there for like five days. Um, so I suppose that was my rock bottom sort of being in the psychiatric ward and everything as well. Like that was the worst part probably. And along with that admission as well. So I've been diagnosed with depression, anxiety. I got diagnosed with um, post-traumatic stress disorder and what's called um, borderline personality disorder. Have you guys ever heard of that? You have, yeah. You do love yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would be fantastic as well. Yeah. So when um, people hear you, like I always get a little bit like nervous telling people that I was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder because they think, oh, crazy, multiple personalities, you're unstable and everything so it is often quite hard telling people what borderline personality disorder is is it's more like um unstable emotions um a lot of more of it as well is like a fear of abandonment so like a fear that people are going to leave you and everything as well um 
So I suppose like key points in borderline personality disorder, I wrote down so that it would be easier to say like unstable moods, relationships, thinking and behavior, impulsivity, emotionally volatile, um, and very reckless and self-destructive behavior. So I suppose too, when I'm, when I'm in a really bad headspace, I am super self-destructive. Like I do not care what happens to me. Like, um, you, you know, I don't care about like getting hurt. I don't care about, you know, saying nasty things to friends or family and the things that I've said have been so horrible when you look back and then, and that's not who I am as a person at all. But when you look back, you're just completely dissociating and you're just in complete self-destructive mode. And I think that's where kind of like the, that suicidal behavior has come from. It's for me, it's not been like a, oh, I, w- I want to die. This is what I want to happen. It's just, I've just kind of been like, everything is so bad. I just want it to stop. Um, you know, I'm going to do something self-destructive. And if dying is a result of that, so be it type things. So I've just kind of been in that space where it's not been like, I'm doing these harm, like self-harm things in order to die. It's just, for me, it's been like, well, I don't care. I don't care what happens. And so, yeah, just things like that where you just don't even care what will happen. I've been like driving in my brand new car before and just been like, oh yeah, I could just drive into another car right now and like not care. And I suppose those are really scary moments where you're like, oh geez, if I'm having these thoughts, like then things are pretty bad. Um, But it was actually really funny because, well, not funny. (laughs) When I was um, in the hospital, my parents came in for like, we had like a family meeting with one of the doctors there. And um, my dad was like, oh, you know, we just want to ask like about bipolar. Like we think Molly might have bipolar. And I was kind of like, oh, this is the first I'm hearing of this. Like, thanks, dad. (laughs) But um, then we got talking to the doctor more and she asked me a lot of sort of like questions. And then everything she said was just like light bulb moment. Like she was like, Oh, you don't, you know, do you find trouble with say like people like touching you and stuff? And I was like, yeah. And all the things that she was saying, I was like, yes, yeah, yeah. Like everything that you're saying is right. She's like, yeah, it sounds like you've got borderline personality disorder. And then we were kind of like, Oh, okay. Well then this is something new that we have to deal with as well. Um, So borderline personality disorder doesn't have a cure as such. Um, They say a lot of medications don't even work for it. It can help with the symptoms, but they say a lot of those things don't help. So what's called, they have a therapy, which is called DBT. So dialectical behavioral therapy. So learning sort of all these things, it's like psychotherapy is what it's called. Um, I think there's only like one proper, say like course in Melbourne and there's like a huge hefty wait list for it and it's super expensive and you have to go like every week and dedicate like three to five hours. Mm. So then, um, you know, that's when my parents were going home when I was in the hospital and they were doing their homework going, okay, well, where can we get her into DBT? And then they'd call around and then they're like, oh yeah, there's a wait list and it's this expensive and blah, blah, blah. And then they were like, okay, well, she's not going to get sort of like seen for that anytime soon. So then that's when they started to look up 
okay, are there psychologists or psychiatrists that offer DBT sort of, are they trained in those therapies that they can help her with? So I suppose that's how we came across my psychologist. And so he doesn't do DBT because DBT is a bit more rare. So there's also um, CBT, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, and ACT, which is um, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. So he does ACT. Um, so, yeah, basically my mum, like, begged him <laughs> to be, you know, to take me on, and then he ended up taking my case on. So I've been doing a lot of that kind of work with him. Yeah, well, it's, um, mm. yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. I think the borderline personality disorder is something that, we definitely like to not look down. I think, you know, yeah. listeners in, in society do the same. You know, we hear depression and anxiety talked about all day, every day. And it's great that this conversation yeah. is happening more and more in mainstream media, but with something like that, the ordinary borderline personality disorder, you just don't sort of hear about. So it's very, very difficult mm. for people who haven't lived it themselves, haven't lived with people closer than that have suffered through that to actually get a, get their heads around and say, okay, well, this is actually what it is and this is how it affects your life. And I imagine, um, Molly, that one of the biggest struggles with that is, is that those symptoms you're describing would have a massive impact on your professional life, your personal life, and, and your mm. relationships with those people around you when you are sort of so destructive. Um, mm. Talk mm. through that a little bit more, just how that influenced, you know, your life and the world around you rather than just your own mental health on a day-to-day basis and, um, and how mm. it's actually coming out of that. Yeah. Um, I suppose that's, and that's what I do sort of think like um, the people, the only people that have really, well, really seen me sort of like at like full swing when it's the worst of the worst are probably my parents because I live with them. So, you know, they've seen things that like nobody else would have ever seen. Um, my mum's probably seen the worst of it as well, where I just become like a completely different person. So them having to sort of see that and deal with it on a daily basis is, well, I mean, not that you're at hundred percent sort of your worst every day, but you know, them having to see and deal with that would be sort of like quite confronting for them as well. And I think my first time of um, like self-harm my sister was home and she was the one to sort of take take me and drive me to the hospital and everything so basically um, with the first with my sort of like say first attempt is what they say is I tried to overdose on my medication so um, we had to call like my sister called um, like triple zero and then they were like oh well you know, you have to get off the phone and call poisons because we don't know sort of like how affected she is. And then she called poisons and they were like, no, you need to take her to the emergency department like straight away. So, you know, I, I suppose I like take for granted at times, like, you know, my sister having to see that and, you know, deal with that and her having to be the one to take me to the hospital, like for them, it would be quite confronting, but I'm really lucky as well. Like I have a really good support network around me. Like, you know, not everybody's parents would take off time, you know, to, to look after them at home or, you know, and like deal with things or call around and try to do the right thing. And, and as well, um, so my parents could understand it more. Um, they actually never told me that they'd had this planned, but they actually went to a workshop uh, um, about borderline personality disorder wow. um, for family, friends and like loved ones of people with borderline personality disorder so that they, so it was like a workshop that went for a day. So they went to that to try to find out more about it and like how to deal with me and everything as well. So 
I mean, for me to sort of have that type of support is absolutely massive and that sort of made a huge difference as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm. Obviously, yeah, support around you is so important. It's not just from a professional sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, obviously, you're incredibly lucky to have what sounds like an, an amazing and supportive family, Molly. So I'm sure mm. you're super grateful to have those people. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's awesome. And even um, my workplace, like, I think. I started working there in 2018, but prior to that, I was really down because I was in a job that I hated as well. And I suppose this is where you take for granted, like the things that you do day in and day out. I was just so unhappy at this job. When I started working where I work now, um, I like, I don't even think I can explain or put into words like the benefit that that was for my mental health just to work somewhere where people weren't only like kind, but where like you were engaged in what you were doing, you know, you're really sort of like doing purposeful things at work every day. And I suppose that's sort of like giving me more drive and everything as well. And just everybody at work being sort of like understanding and stuff also has been like a huge help as well. Awesome. Mm. Um, You've obviously come a long way since yeah, what you described, rock bottom, and those experiences that you've shared with us. Apart from obviously, you know, you, you understand you're still medicating, you're still going to, you know, spoke about the importance of maintaining your relationships with mm. the psychologist and the psychiatrist. What do you do on a daily basis that's, you know, really positive strategies to, to help you maintain your mental health and, and help you sustain mm. your life today? Yeah. Um, I hate, I hate admitting it. I hated um, admitting this but um actually like gym <laughs> um because for so long with the mental health stuff everybody was like oh my god exercise so good for you you know like endorphins it's great um will improve your mental health so much and I was just like oh yeah whatever like everybody just says that like oh like whatever I'm like there's just those crazy like gym people like those crazy gym junkie people um I obviously I grew up a very like active lifestyle like Uh, but a lot of like team sports and stuff. So like dancing, gymnastics, netball, like water sports and stuff like that. And then when you eventually kind of stop those things, I I can't, it was almost like I didn't really realize that I wasn't doing much physical activity. And it was actually um, Chris that said once in one of my sessions, he's like, oh, so what do you do like physical exercise wise, you know? And then I thought to myself and I'm like, shit, I don't do anything. And then, so I, um, I started going to gym twice a week. Um, long story short, um, now this, um, crazy gym person and I go six mornings a week. (laughs) So, um, I do like a 5.30 or a 6am session. So I get up early every day and do it. I can't do it at the end of the day. I just find I'm not motivated. I'm too tired. Work might've been busy that day. So I suppose um, gym's been a huge, a huge positive turn for me in my life as well, because it gets me up and out of bed. Um, like, especially on the weekend, if I don't have anything to do, I'll just lie in bed because I'm like, well, I don't have anything to do. I don't have anywhere to be. What's the point in getting up? So I suppose gym's something that gets me up and gets me going every day. And then it makes me feel good afterwards as well. I wish I could say like meditation or something, but uh, I haven't been able to nail that as yet. Um, But yeah, I suppose like gym's been a huge positive as well. Something that I do every day for myself and that's how I start my day off. And then that helps a lot as well. 
Everyone is well aware of the physical health benefits of exercise, but there is mm. so much research out there now that says that exercise and physical health, physical activity can have a massive, massive impact on, on your mental health. And I get mm. that, you know, that, that, you know, almost sort of relaxing to, to sort of start that process because it's like, oh, I'm sad, I'm anxious, I'm down, like, geez, going for a run, I'm lifting some weights, like, how the hell is that going to help me, you know? Yeah. yeah. It, it sort of doesn't almost mm. make sense, but... It's, it's so cool to hear that, you know, you're, that's yeah. sort of completely changed your view from being, you know, relatively inactive to mm. a gym junkie, a gym person. Yeah, like, yeah, I know. Impacts on not only physical health and mental health. Like, that's, that's really yeah. Cool. yeah, and I hate admitting that all those people were right all along. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hate being like, yeah, yeah, you know, like uh, gym was the thing and I feel like just like cliche, like, yeah, gym saved my life. Like, <laughs> not literally, but it did sort of help. It's, it's helped immensely and um, my trainer will love me saying that, but I don't like <laughs> admitting that although, you know, all those people were right all along, but yeah, it's definitely made a huge, huge, huge difference. And I'm much more sort of like stable now, probably because of it also. And it, I suppose it kept me going throughout COVID as well. Like even though it was on Zoom, it was something that like, I think a lot of people kind of dropped off with their exercise and stuff in COVID because it was just easy to do that but it was something that like kept me going and get it got me up every day throughout COVID and exercising as well. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, I think from an outsider's point of view people that have I suppose, been lucky enough to never had any symptoms or de- of depression mm. body, for example can struggle to understand what, what is, exactly this is like and I mean this is why I mm. myself, like, love having these conversations important that people get a better understanding and have an mm. of, you know what it is like to, to have symptoms of, of poor mental health are there any sort of specific myths or misconceptions that are out there molly that, that really frustrate you that people sort of don't understand about people who do mm. mental health yeah one thing that um oh, i feel a bit negative in saying this but you know like they have sort of like the whole are you okay day and these things and i think a lot of people think that they understand mental health and they think that, you know, they know how to help people and that they're open to having like uh, conversations and stuff. And I think people think they know how to navigate that and how they can be good at it. But I feel, I feel a lot of people aren't very, very good at it. Not to say uh, like, I'm so happy that there's so much more um, like advocacy for it and people are trying. I mean, that that's the best thing ever, just that people are trying to understand and they're putting that effort in is great and that's amazing. But often when people try to help, I find they're not necessarily overly helpful sometimes. Mm-hmm. I probably have, um, I have one really good friend who, and he sort of suffers with like major depression and stuff as well he's probably the only person that I can talk to that I feel like truly sort of like gets it and understands um and I have like friends as well that sort of don't really experience you know poor mental health at all so they can't understand and they know that but also that's not their fault you know that they're trying you know a lot of people are trying and trying to understand and I think, you know, the more that things come out about it and then, more, you know, more people talk about it, the more understanding there will be. So it's only going to improve from here. 
Um, but yeah, so I think people are only going to get better at understanding, especially after COVID and everything, I suppose, like a lot of people and a lot of people as well, who you wouldn't have thought would ever struggle with anything, you know, things in their life just completely changed and therefore they've experienced mental health things now too. So it's, you know, it's really been like a weird pendulum swing as to how it's kind of affected different people differently and everything as well. Um, And I feel like a bit of a narcissist saying this, but um, throughout COVID when, um, because I have mental health issues, a lot of people, like I had a lot of friends that would check up on me, which was really nice. Like, cause they know that I have mental health issues. So they'd just message me and be like, Oh, how are you going? How are you going with everything? Like, Oh, it must be really hard for you. And I actually found um, throughout COVID, I was actually quite good. I feel like I not only thrive in crisis. And I said, I said this to my sister, I said, I I'm kind of like thankful and happy that a lot, of other people are experience are experiencing sort of like sad feelings. And I'm like, I know that makes, it, it sounds a little bit mean. I, I thought, but people are feeling the way that I feel every day. Um, and then that made me not feel as lonely because I was like, I'm not the only one feeling these feelings. I mean, you go through normal every day and people are like posting this on Facebook, that on Instagram and, you know, and, we all know sort of like deep down that's not necessarily that their life is perfect, but you know, you're just sort of like fed all these things that people are happy all the time. And you think, okay, well, why, why aren't I happy all the time? Like, cause I'm not happy all the time. Um, so throughout COVID, I didn't feel as alone, like other people were feeling down as well. So I'm like, Oh my God, I'm not the only person that feels shit sometimes. Like other people feel shit as well as usually pre COVID, you know, everybody's just, it's all about the happy things. It's all about the good things. It's all about the positivity. So you kind of like shit. Well, I'm the only one that feels this way. Like this, this isn't right. There's something wrong with me. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I actually fared quite well in COVID, but it's also, you know, gone around in, in a circle and made people kind of like just be realize and be more attuned to mental health as well. I suppose. Like, I don't like the fact that other people feel down. That's not nice at all, but it's really sort of opened up doors for many people and different kind of understandings as well, which has been really good. Mm-hmm. It is so hard to be empathetic with anyone when you have, mm. if, if, you know, to some degree, there's always a degree of spectrum how they feel. I mean, I said that yep. my job, if someone comes in and they've sprained an ankle, I've sprained an ankle before and like, yes, you're mm. going to treat it regardless, but I can actually yep. sort of off felt that and I know exactly how you're feeling. Or, you know, some mm. back pain, I've had back pain myself, I don't know how they're feeling. Like, it was mm. exciting in my little nerdy physio professional world where mm. I had a groin injury about 18 months ago and I never had one before. And like I was fully mm. happy to treat groin injuries prior to that, but I never had that complete everything understanding. This is yeah, yeah. even though I was completely confident to treat it. Um, yeah, with mental health, it's, it's a very similar thing. And mm. I'm the same with um, like teens that come into work, like with acne, because I've had I, I've had acne, so I'm like, oh. God, like, I, and, you know, you see sort of just like how shy and in their shell they'll be. And I suppose if I'd never had acne, I'd just be like, oh, yeah, whatever. They're just a bit down. But, you know, they come in and you're like, yeah, I see why you're kind of like hunched over because you're not confident in yourself and that's the way that they're feeling. Yeah. But, yeah, I suppose things as well, other um, conditions that other people have that I've never had, yeah, you just kind of, it's, you don't have that same kind of like excitement. Like, 
you know, when, when sort of things improve and go better and everything, you don't have that same kind of like satisfaction, I suppose, that like job satisfaction where you're like, oh, this is great type thing. But yeah, even, even me still, like, even though I'm quite open in talking about sort of like my story with mental health and everything, I find because I've been quite open about it, that opens a door for other people to then talk to me about their problems and which is great and I'm glad that they can feel thankful to talk to me but sometimes like I, I even I don't know what to say because I'm not I'm not a professional and sometimes I think oh that's really horrible but I don't I don't know what to say to that mm-hmm. I don't know what I can say that will make you feel better and I mean I suffer with it as well and I still don't even know what I can say to make somebody else feel better because I'm no expert either and we're all just trying to figure it out and do the best that we can and make it work but yeah as best <laughs> yeah yeah Absolutely. Um, I suppose on that topic, do you have any any tips or advice for people who are close to people who are suffering from poor mental health, whether it's your partner or your friend or your son or your daughter or your mum or your dad? We know this can be quite tough interactions and we're never all going to have the answers. Like you said, even yourself, someone mm. who's not going to know necessarily how to make them feel better. But at the same time, it's not necessarily your responsibility if you're having a conversation yeah. with someone who's suffering from mental health that, hey, I need to cheer you up and I need to you know click you out of this depression and anxiety right mm. now. Clearly, we can't expect any person who's close to us to do that. But, you know, I think if you had any advice or any tips for people who are close to people who are suffering, um, mm. that books. I think it's something that we all struggle with at time to time. Mm. Yeah. Um, one thing that I, w- I would say which is so important is to just, um, like, really take note and like be aware so you might not even you might sort of like notice things whether it be like your partner or your friend where you're kind of like oh she's a bit she's a bit down that day or oh my mate's been a little bit sort of like odd lately like don't sort of just forget those things or brush it off or not not pay attention I suppose like take note and you know of things and see how consistent things are if it's becoming a repetitive thing if you're in a situation where you're comfortable enough to have that conversation with them, you don't have to sort of make their conversation really deep and really sort of like Mm -hmm. um, awkward or anything, but just open the floor for them to know that, yeah, cool. If you want to talk about anything, I'm here. And if they want to, then they will Um, rather than, because I often feel like too, sometimes um, people will will like force a, a conversation upon me. Like I might feel really down or something and then they feel that we have to jump into this big, deep and meaningful conversation. And I'm not really somebody who's overly emotional in that sense. I don't like, I just like taking the piss of myself and joking about it. I can't sit down and get mushy about it because it's just too awkward. So I suppose when, when others sort of like force that conversation upon me, I'm like, oh, I just don't want to do this. Like if I want to talk about it, I'll come to you type thing. So I suppose just letting people know that that door is open and that they can always go there if they want to. Um, yeah, provided you're comfortable with having that conversation with somebody and then or, and educating yourself as well, like being, uh, being aware of different signs, different symptoms, what you can do to sort of jump in and correct that. And like I um, said before, like, are you okay day? Everybody knows how to ask, are you okay? But then when you turn around and say to somebody, yeah, I'm actually really shit, nine times out of 10 people go, oh, yeah, what's next? Oh, you do that. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. And sometimes, too, you just lie to people and say that you are feeling okay because you know that they won't know how to react to it and it's just going to make them uncomfortable. So a lot of the times when I've been really down and in bad situations, 
I just won't say because I know that that person's going to go, you know, I'm not going to say, oh yeah, I tried to kill myself last week and I was in the psych ward for five days. They're going to go, oh, oh, and then they're uncomfortable. And then that's what I find. So I'll often just avoid sort of having that conversation. But yeah, if they know that you're there and you're open to sort of being there as a support system, that's a really, you know, really good advice as well. The other side of it as well is asking, you know, these questions or just telling someone that you notice that they might not be feeling or they might not Mm. see themselves. It could be, you know, a barrier breaker for them to kind of realise, hang on, maybe I actually am not myself. Mm. I know that happened a lot with a lot of people during COVID. There was, Mm. I think, this whole stigma of we're all in this together and we're all going to get through and everything's great. But, you know, deep down a lot of people kind of felt you know, almost inexplainably shit. Like they may not have had yeah, the yeah. bad as someone else's, but they, you know, still had a lot going on and didn't know how to bring that to light. And just being able to kind of check up on people and, you know, mm. see or actually mention to them that, you know, you are there for them. They might go away and go, yeah, everything's okay. Then they can go mm. away knowing that actually maybe I'm not all right. Maybe I can talk to that person. Maybe I do have an avenue of support around me that I didn't think I did have before. Uh, yeah definitely yeah because even when I've sort of when I've reached really sort of like bad or low moments um I sort of start dissociating for like extended periods of time so that's often how I'll get to a really bad stage because I'm dissociating and I'm not paying attention to you you know and then my mum will notice it and you know family will notice it but I'm just completely dissociating like a deer in the headlights and you just yeah. yeah and you just going 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 until you finally just crash and I mean if I was aware of those things it might it might be different but because I'm sort of going in it into a dissociative mindset that's how I kind of like end up being in that position and then it just gets so bad that it's just like a train wreck um but it's funny too because people sort of avoid having the conversation or they'll find it difficult to talk about it but you know, that whole analogy of, you know, well, if you had like diabetes, you'd treat it. If you had this, you'd treat it. If you had that, you'd treat it. Um, I suppose before the admission where I got sent to the psych ward, I was just like in such a self-destructive mode that like I didn't even physically try to harm myself. My parents just knew something was up and that I was Uh, that I was just sort of like on my way to crashing. So basically they like locked the doors to the house. Um, I was trying to leave. I just wanted to take it. I just wanted to drive off. They like took my car keys from me, locked the doors to the house, wouldn't let me physically leave and called an ambulance and the ambulance came and and got me. And literally though, my mum was like, oh, you need, um, I think you really need an admission. And I'm like, no, I'm really busy with work. I'll go on Wednesday. Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> I was like, no, I'm really busy with work. I'll go, uh, you know, on Wednesday, I promise I'll go, I'll go to the hospital, but I can't right now. It's like, you know, somebody in a footy match at, um, you know, breaking their leg in the second quarter and going, oh yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll go after the game. I'll go after the game. Like, no, that's not how it works. And that's how things actually get worse. But yeah, so you kind of ignoring those things and sort of not having that um, self-reflection as well can be detrimental to people's health as well. So as you said, even just sort of like noting it, mm. it can almost give people almost like permission to notice it as well within themselves and go, oh yeah, you know, I am sort of a bit out of touch and feeling a bit down and stuff as well. And that 
helps. I like that analogy all about thought of, oh, no, no I'll, I'll go sort myself on a Wednesday, work's busy, whatever. Like, <laughs> it's, we prioritise things that aren't necessary. Mm. What shouldn't be number one priorities all the time. No. All these such busy lives. Like, we all got to work, we all got social yeah. stuff, we all got families, we've all got a heap of, you know, relatively minor issues that build up and build up and build up and we've got long to do mm-hmm. that can wipe stress, right? And it's so easy mm-hmm. for my mental health to get pushed aside behind work. Or yeah. behind, I've got to, you know, clean the house today or I've got to go and do mm-hmm. shopping or I've got to go out for dinner or I've got to see this person. And it's like, well, it's something that we all as a society need to learn to get better at pushing up the list, yeah? And yeah, I do exactly. It, mental health, like, theoretically, it should be our number one priority above mm. everything else at all times, really. Yeah. Health for so long has been such a focus on like, we know how to fix everything in our bodies, except our mind. Mm. Like, you, you know how, you know how to, you know, there's, uh, you know, surgeries for this, that, and so many advancements for say like sports injuries and this and that, but yeah, the whole mental health thing's obviously just been like pushed to the wayside to some degree. And I think it's now getting to a point in society where it's just at complete you know, like boil over period. And now a lot of people are feeling it. I think it's also, uh, I mean, not to just like state the obvious, but the rise in like social media and tech and stuff like that. And um, like listening to a few of your guys podcasts and sort of like the limits of the phone and stuff like that as well. And like not checking like social media and stuff like that as well. And even some like in January, I had a month off of work. Um, And so you've got more free time. And then, so I kind of found that I was a lot more down in January. And then I kind of thought to myself, I'm like, well, I've got a lot more free time. I've been on my phone a shitload more. Yeah. Like, I, and then I'm kind of like, yeah, do you think that that's a coincidence? And I'm probably feeling like a bit shit now. Mm. So yeah, just like putting in those little, and like, it, it can sound cheesy, you know, just doing those little things, like those healthy practices and habits with the phone, but like it actually really, matters in the long term and has like true effect and everything as well so that's been like a huge sort of factor in the whole mental health thing i think worldwide really yeah yeah mm. you've um you've been super generous with your time Molly. i've got a couple of little things just to finish mm. off so, i mean you've already sort of told us you know what works for you the exercise has been so beneficial in your phone use obviously you know medication has been really positive in your life you, you've spoken to professionals you've had a really good support network around you which all these things are fantastic and obviously, you know, allowing you to be in a stable position where you are today. Do you have, you know, three sort of takeaways or, or tips for people who are suffering from poor mental health who, you know, haven't had your experience? What can they do and what should they be doing on a daily basis now or going forward or to start their journey um, mm. to support themselves if they don't have the experiences obviously that you have had? Mm. Um, people might think that this is a weird, a weird one to say, but sleep. Like sleep is so important. And I like, I listened to your guys episode on sleep and that was really good as well. But um, I also have like a um, medication at night to help me to sleep. And I, I take that every night again, don't love that. But if you're not sort of like sleeping well and you're not resting and your mind's not resting, it's just going to be a snowball effect and you're going to have a shit day the next day. It like, really sort of and like taking time out to rest so like sleep and rest so that you're not burning out um but also like taking the time to just do recreational things things that you really like I mean like as you said before it can be so easy to get sort of wound up in that trap of like oh no I've got to clean I've got to clean the house today or 
you know, my sister might've texted me and said, Oh, you know, I'm going to go shopping. Do you want to come with me? And I'm like, Oh no, but I really need to change my bed sheets or something. But you know what? Like, fuck it. Like, you know, do the things that, that as well are going to like in, enrich your mental health and your emotional well being and everything as well. I suppose they have my two things and um, the third, but probably just don't take yourself too seriously. Yeah. Like I, I think I just sort of like laugh at myself and some of my mental health stuff all the time. Cause you, you know, I don't really care what other people think, I suppose at the end of the day as well, but yeah, just don't take yourself and life too seriously. No, I like it. You mentioned sleep and rest and I, I, I almost mm. think of sleep and rest as two different things. Like obviously they're very, very mm. have a good night's sleep, well, well rested, et cetera, but you can have the best eight hours sleep every night. And we know that's so important. We've done a podcast on it. We both rave about it, mm. um, which is great. But at the same time, if your mind is constantly racing all throughout the day with, like you said, those general life stresses, yeah. you know, you're putting off doing something you enjoy to change your bed mm. or whatever it may be. Yeah. You're not necessarily resting throughout the day. And I think having um, periods of mental rest where, like you said, you are taking mm-hmm. time to do something you enjoy, whether that is yep. hanging out with a friend, whether it's, you know, reading the paper, whether it's going for a surf, whether it's doing Watching, keeping paper. up with the Kardashians or, oh, Kardashian, you know, just you know, whatever it may be. shit things. Yeah. Reading yeah. the paper. Yeah. Read yeah. The paper. <laughs> I'll read the paper. You still read the paper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My parents have only recently just stopped buying the paper every day because they would buy it every single day, but they've said they're only going to buy it on weekends now. <laughs> so even they've stopped reading it every day. I don't think anyone did that anymore. Absolutely. That's not. Whatever Maybe not anybody below the age of 30 anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I'm nearly 30, so nearly 30. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Just something else from my own experience. Like sometimes I personally might feel lazy if I'm reading the paper or like, you know, going mm. for you know, going for a walk by myself or, you know, doing any of those things that, you know, help you to get mental aren't, or, or aren't aren't productive. Stress, when I've also got, you know, three or four or ten things on my to-do list. And I'm like, well, Jesus, I, I always have this urge to get rid of my to-do list and, yeah. and get rid of all that mm. I go and look after myself. Whereas, yeah. you know, it is really important to say, okay. That bed sheet analogy, that can wait for, you know, mm. I'm not waiting till Wednesday to sort my mental health because work's busy. Like, I want to do something for myself now. And if that means work, yeah, exactly. wait a little bit, that's okay. Yeah. 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 Like, you're not going to die if your bed sheets aren't changed. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, and that's what I kind of like had to, had to think. Like, I would always make myself be really productive. And then, you know, if, then if you avoid doing the things that you love or, yeah, just like resting, it, like, you're not really living and you know, all of those little things aren't going to like, like I said, they're not going to kill you if you don't do them. So it's fine to have a day off. It's fine to have a lazy day and just not want to do anything that day or put things aside. Um, Two more really quick questions for you, Molly. Mm. Um, What is one thing you would change that mental health is either managed or perceived? In terms of management. Either either how it's managed or how we can Mm. Uh, how we perceive it I suppose I'd just uh, I mean it would it's just not possible but for everybody to at least experience the feelings to have a little bit more understanding I suppose and in terms of the way it's managed I just think for it to be more accessible to people um, I mean I know I know it's a really hard 
it's a really hard like balance to get right because I mean you can't have free mental health services for everybody because then how do people get paid how do people make money mm-hmm. but obviously just working something out to make it more accessible to people so that it's not so hard and there aren't so many like social barriers for people in terms of getting getting there and stuff like that yeah awesome mm. um unless there's anything you want to add Jay, i've got one more question for you Molly. and it may be the mm-hmm. most important question of the day yeah tomato sauce in the fridge or in the pantry um i have the best answer to this one pantry oh yes. why oh. yeah yeah no you know you know why um, because it says on the sauce bottle, keep it refrigerated as that's like a legality to cover their own ass if you have it when it's off. But if you look at where pantries are architecturally placed in houses, they're placed in the centre of the house, away from all the elements, so away from heat, away from the cold, so therefore they're just at room temperature. So it's not like it's going to go off or go bad if it's not kept in the fridge. So it's made to be kept in the pantry. What? Yep, (laughs) yep. Mind blown. Um, I, I hated that answer. <laughs> Sorry, Molly. Because you know that it's right. Ah, <laughs> uh, I've got nothing to add to it. I'm going no comment to that. That was <laughs> I, the research into that was brilliant. I won't. I won't lie, but wow. Yeah, yeah. But think about um, it. All pantries are in mostly are in centre toward like they're never on a border of a house. What wrong are that, they? That's blowing my mind. I, as much as I mm-hmm. think where your source should be, the uh, pantry comments, yeah. that's spot on. I'm thinking of every yep. pantry I've ever seen. Yeah. Yep, I know. And you do and you're like, oh, there's never been any on the ah, board. That's a great point. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you so much for, for taking the time to speak hey, today and having this conversation. It's, uh, it does take a bit of courage and, you know, you have to really break the time to have these conversations and, you know, to, to be really vulnerable and open yourself up to, to both us and our audience. So we really do appreciate um, you coming on and having a chat yeah. with us. And we think there's a lot to takeaways and, and lots of things that yeah, people can really benefit from, from, from hearing your story. So thank you. Yeah, so pleasure. Much. Thanks, Molly. There was one thing I did, I did think about too, like what kind of when I was thinking about talking about this today, I'm like, oh yeah, I was medicated from, um, 20, from 2010. And I was like, pretty sure in 20, uh, 2010, um, Richmond had a really bad season. Uh-huh. And I'm like, Co- coincidence? Maybe not. Um, Geelong smashed us that year as well. And Richmond ended up 15th of the ladder when there were 16 sides, you know, in the competition. So Maybe not mental health after all. Maybe it's just which one. A lot of target supporters would probably agree with you there. It all comes back to the footy. Yep. Comes back to the footy. Um, I, I did respect yeah. what you've got to say up until this point, Molly, but you completely lied. <laughs> Richmond in 2010. We all know that you jumped on the bandwagon in 2017. So. <laughs> oh, did he, did he tell you that I was a bandwagon supporter? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know, 20, 26 years of consecutive membership, total bandwagon supporter. We'll have to get you to prove that. For our our story, we'll need, have you got like the scarf or the... (laughs) Yes, yes. I have my membership that says the year's consecutive. What level of membership? Because pet memberships don't count. Can't be a Um, Gold. Oh, Oh, no, platinum, platinum. I'm platinum now. Yes, so I'm above gold. I'm platinum. some level of proof. Yep, I'll prove it to you. (laughs) Good stuff. (laughs) Will do. Thanks so much, Molly. No worries. You too.
Bye. Bam!